Jason Doctor. And I'm Corinne Doctor. And this is Fishing Stories. Welcome back to part two. With Keith Rose Ennis. Uh, this is a two-parter, as Corinne mentioned. So if you haven't checked out episode one with Keith from last week, we recommend you go back and check that one out first. You're going to want the Keith background, and you're also going to want to hear about one of the largest time in ever caught on fly tackle. Yeah, that's that's a worth a listen for sure. Yeah, it's technically episode five of season two, so. Right. But while you're there, just go back and listen to all the episodes if you haven't. Might as well. We appreciate it. If you haven't followed uh, or subscribed to the podcast, I should say, go ahead and hit that up as well while you're in there. You might as well. Um, so on this episode with Keith, we dive into some saltwater Seychelles antics, which just make me pine for some warm weather, coconuts, palm trees. Absolutely. And some fun anecdotes from the early days exploring the Seychelles from Keith. Um, some good stories there. So dive in and enjoy. Well, I feel like we would be remiss if, uh, if you have time in not getting a saltwater story from you being as so much of your time and and so much of your your recent guiding history with Alphonse and everything is in the salt I don't know if you have time but we'd love to hear uh hear a story from from somewhere warm and salty yeah I can wind the clock back to uh, the old days of exploration in in Seychelles oh yeah uh, that's kind of what I was hoping for (laughs) So obviously the most fun is, is in experiencing new places for the first time. And uh, um, I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of those experiences. Uh, one of the last experiences before we started operating uh, um, guided trips to most of the outer islands of the Seychelles was a trip where we, we departed uh, from Mahe, which is the main island in Seychelles, on board uh, a ship called, called the Mika, which was a 110-foot uh, steel schooner. I charted from St. Francis Bay in South Africa. It had been sailed up via uh, Mozambique to, to Mahe. And then uh, we had uh, got everything packed and we were outbound on a trip for two months. It was from the trip was going from uh, Mahe via all the outer islands and we were going to go uh, and end up in Madagascar. Mm. And it was the, the boat owner and his wife, myself and my fishing partner. And uh, that's it and the crew and we headed off on this this trip and we we had fished we fished quite a few of the atolls i'd fished before obviously the inner islands they fished we fished st joseph's and poiv which i'd fished before and we fished farqua which i'd fished before and then we started getting further out we fished providence which we no one had ever fished with a fly before i don't think we fished for the first time was incredible and that's a story for another time (laughs) <laughs> and then we progressed onto a stove, which we had never fished before. And uh, we arrived in the northern point, which is about a um, four or five kilometer walk from the southern point. And the reason why we anchored in the northern point was because of the swell. It's the only way we could get access on, onto the shore. Um, the, the, the whole of a stove is surrounded by vulcanized coral so, and surf breaks. So you can't, on the eastern side, so you can't, uh, you can't get a boat in there. On certain times so we went ashore in the north and uh, we fished all the way down um, around the, the eastern side catching the odd giant trevally it was high tide and then we got to the mouth of the lagoon and as we arrived there it's it you could see i mean it's a gt mecca and the water coming out of it it's it's, it's milky um, it's milky white and uh, it's unlike anywhere else i've been in the world where 
the water uh, pushes up um, into the lagoon and then it also gets over the apex and, and fills the lagoon. And the water falls out the lagoon for 11 hours of the day and only pushes for one because of the, the apex. So it creates almost like a little damn wall. The mouth of the lagoon is only, is only 100 meters wide. So um, it, it, it's, it's easy to wade across. Um, but we arrived at this, at this, at this uh, um, lagoon entrance and we started walking up the eastern side of the, of the lagoon entrance on this Balkans rock. And as you, I looked up, I could just see all the giant trevally. And obviously, uh, you know, the males are, they think they're smart and so do the females. They, they, they come and acclimatize to uh, the, the water around them, whereas they can change color. And all the, the clever females uh, turned white and all the dumb males turned black. So <laughs> you can see these guys, <laughs> you can see these guys up against the rock edge, literally uh, um, 20 uh, inches away from, from the edge and, and packed you know, uh, sh shoulder to shoulder. And uh, it, it, we saw these fish and uh, they couldn't see us. And we slowly walked up around them and we caught, caught a few fish and some of them didn't go so well. And there's obviously a lot of coral there. So there was a lot of tackle failure and tackle loss and all sorts of stuff. Uh, but in the end, uh, it was right at the top of the, of the, of the channel where uh, there was a rock and there was one particular huge GT sitting there. And... Uh, um, he wouldn't eat the fly. Um, I actually had to crawl, crawl around. He wouldn't eat the fly, and I changed the fly once or twice and went on to a, a small uh, uh, popper. Made the cast, and he didn't react. And made the cast again, and uh, he came up and ate the fly. Now, the mouth of the lagoon was, was, uh, is a place which is full of coral and obviously sharks as well. So uh, I had to pull it as hard as I could, um, not to the extent I normally pull. And... Uh, had sharks chasing the fish and eventually landed this fish and uh, it was a monster, a monster GT, well over 130 centimeters. Uh, the biggest black GT I've ever caught because normally you get, you, uh, I've got uh, fish over 130 centimeters, but they're generally not black and dark, big males. Yeah. They're generally big females. Um, so this fish, uh, I landed it and it was well over 140 centimeters. And uh, funny enough, it was actually filmed by, by my fishing partner and uh, it went out on the interweb in those days, and uh, <laughs> uh, there's a picture of uh, there's this film clip of me fighting this fish, and everyone was like, "Wow, you know, I can't believe how hard this guy fights the fish." And uh, but little did they know, we'd lost like five fly lines and broken two lines <laughs> before, and uh, <laughs> we had no option, and that was that was it. But anyway, that was the that was the fish that actually set us up for a stove, and that we knew that there was a place that we had to protect, and had to come back, and had to set up a lodge. And, uh, um, but yeah, one of these wild, pla wild places, but also one of these experiences that I'll never forget you know, the whole, whole experience. But the, the, the cool thing about, well, not so cool. The, the, the experience that I remember right at the end was just after I'd landed that fish, it was, it was one o'clock in the afternoon. I just finished my last sip of water and I turned around to watch my, my fishing partner have the last sip of his water. Oh God! And uh, we were five and a half kilometers, five kilometers, four, kilo, four and a half kilometers away from the boat. It was forty degrees. Uh, we had been breaking fly lines. Centigrade, I think that's drills. important to say. Yeah, four degrees. <laughs> we were on the edge of dehydration. We slid to to march back uh, uh, um, to the boat, and uh, it was an interesting walk back. I mean, to the extent that by 
the last two kilometers we were hallucinating. Um, it was it was it was touch and go there for a while, and uh, so it it just it just uh, was a reminder of of, uh, of how you need to be precaution. It was a reminder of how you need to prepare for the inevitable that can happen in the Seychelles. Leading on to that, uh, two days later we ended up at Cosmolido, and nearly drowned two days in a row after um, our captain had turned down his radio. He couldn't hear us. We didn't have a skip near, near us. The oh, tide had come okay. over the apex. It was pushing us into the inside of, 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 the, of the lagoon. The, the schooner which we were on had uh, gone up too far in the lagoon, was now lying sideways because they'd run out of water, um, uh, but was not sinking, was not sinking. So the captain was, was overwhelmed with that experience. It turned his, his uh, radio down or, or it had been turned off. And the tide had come up. So he was more thankful about the tide coming up than worrying about where we were. Right. So on both occasions, we take our boots off and uh, pull our, our waterproof backpacks up with air and our water bottles up with air and swim for a while before being rescued. So yeah, wow. it's, it's been, a, <laughs> been a great experience. Uh, no, it's been uh, those wild places in those days. Um, they were truly wild and, and the only way you could take care of yourself was with what you were carrying. Right. So, yeah. Well, and now you've created like a five-star experience in both of these places. Yeah, we're fortunate enough to have uh, amazing lodges on all of them, um, which are backed by conservation-oriented efforts, which take care of both the marine and terrestrial creatures um, out there. And we've actually seen an improvement on all avenues um, where the last few seasons the fishing has been as good, if not better than it has before. And uh, obviously having a presence on places like Cosmolito, um, it, it, it creates a, you know, awareness for fishing boats that might be in the area or illegal fishing boats that might be in the area that wow. might take the chance of coming into the lagoon and catching fish or, or taking turtles uh, or various other things that they have, they have done in the past. So it's been a great deterrent and it's worked. And we, we have actually assisted in, in the capture of, of uh, illegal fishing boats in the area. And uh, obviously all our anglers that come out to the Seychelles donate $25 a day to our conservation oriented fund. And that goes to the Island Conservation Society that does all of the research and, and uh, projects which we're doing out in the islands. And that then goes into to the protection of obviously this destination and protecting them for future gener generations. Yeah, um, that's awesome. That's amazing. Well, just to circle back really quick on that clip, <laughs> I have seen that video clip many times. It's one of my favorites. And you have, as I recall, some like pretty spot on shorts yeah. going on. It's like, it's not like a, a long short look. It's like a, it's a good, it's a good looking pair of shorts and the, the amount of pressure you're putting on that fish just because it it's wild. it's obviously just you and your buddy and your buddy's filming right so like you have to tail the fish yourself to land it tail and hug i don't think i've ever seen anybody <laughs> solo land a gt let alone of that caliber just by yourself you gotta tail it i mean i've watched that clip many times and it's it's a stunner it's uh, it's from the days of of we were still wearing our our teenage rugby shorts, you know, so fresh, fresh out of apartheid and uh, no, no chance of getting anything fancy. Still wearing our McEnroe sweatbands and uh, 
Yeah, those kind of things. Those yeah. yes, the was, rugby shorts, those are a highlight for me. It was a, sure. it was an era, <laughs> obviously by by the look, the like almost pirate poofiness of the shirt too. I thought I thought I looked quite good. I, mean, oh, I think so. I That's what we're saying. Did not didn't say anything that <laughs> to try those to imply that you didn't look good, Keith. Just really those, appreciated those my, the shorts. Those were my going out clothes. What do you mean? <laughs> And you crushed the look. I'm sure you crushed <laughs> But you can see that milky water that's like heavy current in front of you in that video. It's an unusual setup. Yeah, that, that's the setup you'll get every time you go to a stove on a falling tide. Uh, obviously, uh, the more tide, the better. Um, that pushes up the apex and then floods in the lagoon. And all that fresh water goes all the way up to the mangroves in the back. And then it starts the rotation all, all again and starts falling for 11 hours. It's an incredible experience. And uh, up, in, up, in the, up in the lagoon is obviously, it's, a, it's, it's the place where all the juvenile fish live. So there's, there's shoals of bonefish. There's numerous packs of, of, of Indo-Pacific permit. You get the GTs rushing up there and, and hunting them in the shallow water. And obviously a lot of sharks. Um, it's, it's unique. There's no way in the world that I, I know of that has that kind of experience. The stove is also well known for the wall, which is where, uh, which is on the western side of the lagoon, and it's where Jacques Cousteau filmed a portion of the Silent World, a oh. uh, very well known uh, uh, documentary. Yeah. So it's it's famous for many many reasons. It's uh, it's an incredible place. On the western side, you can stand in, in ankle deep water, and it drops off on the edge to over 500 meters within 50 meters. Wow. So you're fishing into the blue beyond and it's uh, it's incredible there's no way there's no way in the world that i'll be i'll be ever seen somewhere like do the that. blue water species really then nice. come in closer there they can but they can also leave quickly so it's wow. a it's a tackle buster so you kind of want to wait for them to come onto the flat yeah um, so yeah. you've got a, a hundred meters to stop them before they dis disappear into blue yonder yeah um, so it's uh it's it's a it's a it's always a great experience when you hook a big fish there but it's definitely synonymous for the biggest gts in the seychelles um, definitely the ones fly caught, um, but unfortunately, most of the stories have been stories of the one that got away. Oh yeah, yeah. For well, sure. without those, we wouldn't probably keep going out. You know, I've seen in person <laughs> a couple of like nine odd poppers tied on offshore tuna hooks, and the hooks bent out. A GT will straighten any hook. It's about how you apply the pressure. So. Ah. When, you, when you're fishing for GTs, everyone thinks, ah, you've got to fish a, a really tight drag. It's got to be smooth. That's not true. You know, you, you've got to get to a tight drag. So you've got to start with, a, with, a, with a, a drag that is able to spin without breaking, number one, the leader, number two, the fly line or straightening the hook. So you, you obviously hook the fish. You, you clear it onto the reel. You let it start taking a couple, a couple of winds, and then you start applying the pressure. And same, and then obviously you break his spirit, or you're trying to break his spirit, and he'll generally then turn around and come, start coming back towards you and looking for some coral close to you. Mm -hmm. At that stage, you obviously got to have to come off the drag again because he's going to go on another, another run. And if that first run's weakened, your hook is going to straighten it immediately. So come off the drag a little bit, let him start the next run, and then obviously apply the pressure again, keeping your rod low, not lifting it high, they're trying to apply as much pressure as possible. Um, and that's, that's the only way to beat these big fish. Um, I'm not one to chase them with a the boat. 
I don't believe in that. Um, whereas yeah. a lot of people will believe, believe, do believe in chasing them with a boat. Um, I prefer to stand firm and, and pull. And if it doesn't work your way, so be it. Um, yeah. that's just, you know, maybe I'm a little bit old school, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I suppose it's part of being, uh, being in front of over 5,000 uh, GTs, which um, I've guided clients onto and, and knowing that, you know, if, I mean, if I trust anyone's GT technique, I think it's going to be yours. <laughs> Sometimes I question it, but uh, <laughs> you know, if you lose that fish, there's going to be another one coming around at some stage. Right. Yeah. Well, I do like to say that if there's one thing in fly fishing that's almost impossible to teach without just experiencing it, it's fighting a big fish because things happen so fast. A lot of times it's almost impossible to coach before it's gone wrong. Well, and then you know, within if that. You don't have that experience to be responding immediately without even thinking of it. It could be too late. And within that, it's like different species of big fish. Absolutely. Like Garrison can fight a big trout better than most yeah. people. Put me on a GT and I'd be in a <laughs> trouble in a hurry. Well, I can't wait to see you doing it. <laughs> there will be a lot of... Uh, swear words <laughs> yeah, get ready for some <laughs> colorful language my friend you know the, generally uh, when you're guiding you get involved in in, in, in the fight of the fish in, in the sense that um you you can click up the the, the client's reel by a couple notches or pull it back a couple notches but a very very good story was a, a very good uh, friend of mine uh, guide tim babbage um he was out in a destination in the seychelles and his clients had hooked a very big gt and it was of the days when the makers had just come on the scene. And uh, he reached over and just gave it a couple of clicks. And as he gave it a couple of clicks, he didn't realize how much pressure he was putting it. <laughs> and the rod just got yanked completely out of the, out of the guest's hand, disappeared on top of the water into beyond, never to be seen again. Oh, so, no. Uh, it, is, it, is, uh, it is quite daunting when you reach over to tighten up a, a client's uh, reel. You know, Jamie, uh, I would say to him, listen, hold tight. I'm going to give it a couple of clicks. Um, yeah. Just with that story in the back of my mind. That's right. Maybe well, a quick orientation before any touching of reels. Especially when you're <laughs> hooked up to a fish that is such a freight train, you know. It's like that thing will just keep going. The problem with them is that there's no set rule with them. So they all behave differently. Some will head off on a 100 to 200 meter run. Others will hang about and then... They just try and cut you off quite close. So a lot of the time, the, the, big, the big guys that you catch, the, the 135 centimeter plus fish, they make a mistake. It's not you catching yeah. it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you would agree, and, and we've found this, is that I think people underestimate the individual personalities of fish across all species. I think it's the same with any good, good game species of fish. There are very different personalities in individual fish and how they fight and what they do. There are definitely some, you know, generalizations that you can make within a given species, but they're all different. And, and as they progress in their age as well, I mean, for instance, the giant trevally, generally the smaller fish will eat, it, eat the fly a long way out and as mm. fast as you can, stripped as fast as you can. Whereas the bigger fish are generally not as speedy in, in their chase of the, of the fly. Look, they will at times turn around and chase a fly and eat it. But most of the big fish which I've seen caught by guests 
or by myself have been with a leader in the rod tip. They've literally followed it all the way to the rod tip and you've stopped at the end. They've eaten it. So as you hook that big fish, obviously that big uh, perfection loop in 130-pound monofilament goes into the, the rod tip eye. And as you, you, you tighten up on the fish and it starts disappearing, it takes your rod tip, tip with you. So generally with those big fish, when they've eaten so close, you're fighting in for two-thirds of the flight with the, just three sections of your rod. <laughs> <laughs> well, we watched the uh, um, Sportfish TV. Yes. We watched the Sport Fishing TV episode where the Seychelles scene was, I mean, he only had the butt section of his rod by the end yeah. and landed the fish. Yeah. yeah that, that, uh, but generally, generally, you know, a broken rod is, is, is angler error. Um, all, all fly rods uh, behave similarly with a big fish. <laughs> there's no, there's no uh, 12 weight or 13 weight that is, is exempt to breaking on a giant valley. And 99.9% .9 of the time, it's angler error. It's angle yeah. of the rod uh, too high or not coming through or um, uh, various different things. It's, it's not the rod. It's yeah. the angler. Right. But at the end of the day, you know, if you end up with a broken rod, no fish, it's not, you're not so happy. You end up with a broken rod and you got the fish, it's not so bad. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. it just takes one fish to change the story of a day that's right when you when you're putting that much pressure on a rod it can be something really really small i remember back in my early days on the west coast here in the u.s fishing for steelhead and i would occasionally hook into by accident uh, a chinook salmon king salmon which it just i wasn't prepared for the tackle for a big salmon and i remember i was fighting this thing and that rod was just buckled over and I was so tired from fighting this thing that I touched the rod above the cork to just give myself, a, and as soon as I touched it, it just exploded in my face. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes- That was the angler error. That was <laughs> definitely angler error on that one. <laughs> I think we'll give you that one. Yeah. <laughs> in a river that's going at like seven knots. Uh, yeah, it's uh, not, not easy. No, yeah. no. Well, before we let you go, Keith, um, why don't you tell people where they can watch some films, um, your website, um, maybe just a little info about where they could find some more information on Alphons and, uh, and all that. Okay, so you can find some information on our destinations on uh, www.alphonsefishingco.com. Um, you can watch some of the fun movies and the trips that I've done over the past and www.roseinnes.com, which is my website. Just click the, to the films. Um, I post some, some stories from time to time on Instagram, which is Keith Rose Innes Fly Fishing. It's and, a great follow, uh, yeah. guys. Get on that one. Yeah, you're sure. going to want to keep up with that. <laughs> Other than that, uh, send me a message. I'm online quite often. You can chat. Perfect. Awesome. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time. Now that it's coming into happy hour over there, we're going to go start our work day over here. <laughs> yeah, I'm to, uh, all this, all this talking of uh, of vodka drinking on the river in Russia has uh, got me a little thirsty. So yeah, it's about go. time for you. It'd be inappropriate for us because we're not on the river in Russia. Right. <laughs> but we'll have we'll have a drink in your honor a little bit later on, and you have one for us. And we look forward to uh, at some point one of these years trying to get after something uh, in some salt water with you. We'll have you out there next year. 
Yeah, that'll be fabulous. Awesome. Really appreciate it, Keith. Cheers. Thank you. Big thank you to Keith for giving us fun tales from the tour time in on the last episode and of course these early adventures in the Seychelles. If you want to check out both of those websites that he mentioned, both the Alphonse Fishing Co. website to learn more about those destinations and roseinnis.com to see Keith's films, we have links in the show notes on the episode page for this, so be sure to check those out. Fishing Stories is brought to you by Rep Your Water and Lock and Co. Whiskey. If you have a fishing store of your own or a question or a comment or any of the above, feel free to shoot us an email at tellusafishingstory at gmail.com. Until next week.